And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The third article of our creed focuses on the Holy Spirit, but now we turn to other sundry items like the church and baptism and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection. There's debate that people have as to whether we should consider this section a new article of the creed. So it would be article four, the first one being the Father, then the Son, then the Spirit, and now the church. Whereas other people tend to see it as combined with the third article. Right? So in the same way, the second article was composed of two things, who the Son is and what he's done in the world. So a lot of people think we should read the last part of the creed the same way. That we begin with who the Spirit is. And now we're sort of focusing on what the Spirit has done, what He's accomplishing on earth. However you slice it either way, there is certainly a connection here between the Holy Spirit and Him being sort of the Spirit of what we call the Christian church. And that's what we focus on today. That Christ is building a church by a Spirit. And here we confess our belief that that church is, among other things, Catholic. And that tends to throw a lot of people off. As a matter of fact, I was kind of, I love the snow, I'm happy for it, but I was kind of bummed out that today of all days was the snow day, uh, because this uh, line right here was kind of the main reason why I wanted to do this whole sermon series altogether. Because every time we confess the Nicene Creed, we don't typically do it every week. We've just been doing that, if you're a visitor with us, we've just been doing that because we're doing a series on it. But we typically do it about once a month. And almost every time we confess the creed, at least somebody has to ask me, why are we confessing a Catholic church? Like, I thought I was in a Reformed church. I thought I was in an evangelical Protestant church, and here we are confessing the Catholic church. And so one day I thought, well, I should probably explain this uh, from the pulpit, right? If people are confused by this, we should explain it. But then I thought, well, why explain just one line of the creed? We might as well explain the whole thing. There's other, you know, confusing things in it. So the point is, is that the whole reason I did this was to get to this issue. What is the Catholic church? And now... Nobody's here. So thank you for being here. Hopefully they'll listen online. But there is no doubt that there are lots of sort of elephants in the room of Nicaea, and I think this is one of them. What does it mean for us as a Protestant evangelical church to confess belief in a Catholic church? We're going to look at that as well as all the other things. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, please? Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, thus saith the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Typically, the difficulty in preparing a sermon is structure, not content. We live in a very, very blessed age. We live in a very, very blessed time in the world where there's just a plethora of resources for studying God's Word. And so if you're a person like me who has access to these resources, 
any person with the Holy Spirit who has access to all these resources, it's very easy to find things to say about any given passage. It's not hard to come up with things to say. What's difficult is to know how to say it. What's difficult is to know what not to say, right? The reason our sermons typically go 45 minutes instead of 35 is because that's one of my weaknesses, is cutting things out. But even once you narrow down what you want to say, there's still a structural problem. How do you begin? How do you end? How do you transition from one point to the next? And more importantly, how do you take all that you have to say and make it to some degree a coherent thought rather than just sort of vomiting information on people, right? The structure is the difficult part. But thankfully, our line in the creed today makes my job very, very easy. The creed does all the heavy lifting for me because it not only gives us our subject, our content material, the church, that's what we are confessing belief in today. We're talking about the church. But it basically structures the sermon for me because it gives us what have become to known the four marks of the church. So the creed has essentially written a four-point sermon for us today. It's a sermon on the church with four identifying marks so that we know what is the church. And how does the church differ from false churches, the qualities of the church, if you will. And thankfully, in order to try to vindicate the creed's mini-sermon, we've gone to Ephesians 5 where I think almost every point, every mark of the church that the creed brings out to us can be shown from Paul's teaching here on marriage. Paul begins, we didn't read the section, but he actually begins with wives, and he tells wives to submit to their husbands, and then he tells them later on to respect their husbands, and then he goes in to talk about the roles of the husbands, to love their wives, to cherish them and protect them and nourish them. And Paul says the reason this matters is because there's a theology behind marriage. In other words, God has given marriage to us to be a reflection or a metaphor or an analogy of the very gospel itself. Our marriages have been essentially preaching the gospel for all of human history. And so the reason that wives submit to their husbands and the reason why husbands sanctify and sacrificially love their wives is because the wives are playing the role of the church in the gospel analogy And husbands are playing the role of Christ in the gospel analogy. And so, even though this is technically speaking a marriage passage, it is equally speaking a passage on the church and on the gospel and on the relationship between the gospel and the church. And as I said, I think we can identify Nicaea's four marks of the church in this marriage passage. And so let's go through those one by one. The first thing that we're told in the creed is that the church is one. We believe in one church. Let's see that. Verses 25 through 32 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church is called many things throughout Scripture. There are passages that contain a variety of titles. Sometimes they're literal, sometimes they're figurative. 
The Bible, for example, calls the church the kingdom of God. It calls the church the family of God, the household of God, the Israel of God, the Israel above, uh, a nation, among other things. But the key metaphors that the Bible talks about the church today are the metaphors of it being a bride and a body. The church in this text is called the bride of Christ and it's called the body of Christ. And both of those things are establishing that there is only one church, that the church is one. So we begin with the first one, the bride of Christ. When the text tells us that Christ has a bride, we are reminded of the very important truth that Jesus Christ is not a polygamist. Right? A polygamist is a person who has multiple spouses. Jesus Christ does not have a harem. He has one wife. And this is important because Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew teaches us that when we read Genesis, when we read the creation account, we are supposed to see from that God's standard for human sexuality and for marriage. And so when we read in Genesis, we see an Adam, and Adam was not given many wives. Adam was not given a group of women to marry. He was given one wife. And so it's significant that Christ, the new Adam, would himself have one Eve, would have one wife. God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. And so one thing you can learn from this is the primary reason that we are against polygamy in this church is not about the statistics. It's not about, well, it's destructive and it creates abuse and those things might all be true. You can throw them in there. The primary reason that we are against polygamy in this church is because it lies about the gospel. Polygamy is a false gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel because marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And the, picture, and the gospel is not a polygamous Christ. It is not a Christ with many peoples. It's not a Christ with many different ways to heaven. It's not a Christ with many true religions. It's a Christ with one bride, one wife. Christ has one bride, which means there is only one church. And related to this metaphor is not just the idea of the church as the bride of Christ, but also as the body of Christ. But that's not changing the subject. That's not a brand new metaphor. In the sense, they're the same metaphor. Because what does Paul do? He quotes again from the creation account and saying that when a husband and a wife get married, they come together and the two become one flesh. And we are to see a husband and a wife as so close together that we almost consider them one person. So that for a husband to love his wife, he's actually loving his own body. So when we call the church the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, those really aren't two separate metaphors. They're the same metaphor. Because the bride becomes one flesh with her husband. So if Christ has a bride, she, by faith, becomes in union with him. And that union is so close that she becomes one with him. So the bride of Christ becomes his own body. So he loves her and he cherishes her and he treats her the way he would treat his own body. And so the way we understand this is, because this is a metaphor that's used all throughout Scripture, this idea of the church as the body of Christ, and we as individual people are all members of the body. So you have one body, but you have members that do different things, right? You have toes, you have fingers, you have a nose. We are all individual members of the body, but we nonetheless come together and constitute one body. Paul says this in Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
So again, the church ought to be conceived, conceived as the body of Christ. And so what do we learn from that? We yet again learn that there is only one church because how many bodies does Christ have? One. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Christ. There's only one body. So if the church has become that body, then there is only one church. And it's very significant for us to confess that there is only one church. Because if you deny this, it will almost inevitably lead you to heresy. You see, the reason that there's only one church is because there's only one faith. And the reason there's only one faith is because there's only one Savior. And the reason there's only one Savior is because there's only one God. These things are all connected. So to deny that there is only one church, to affirm that there are multiple churches, logically and inevitably, unless God is just very gracious, will lead you to believe that there are multiple faiths. There are multiple ways into heaven, which is a denial of the gospel. And then from there, you will most likely logically deny that there are, is only one Savior. And then from there, you're going to most likely deny monotheism altogether. You see the way this can so quickly unravel. No, there is one God, one Savior, one gospel, therefore one church, one faith, one religion. And so that is why we are comfortable to affirm an ancient creed that there is no salvation outside of the church. There is only one church united to Christ. And you cannot be saved without being united to the only Savior and being part of the only bride. So the church is one. But as the creed goes on to say, the church is also holy. The church is holy. Paul says this, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The word holy comes from a Hebrew word which means to cut, or sometimes to separate. And so... So at a very technical level, something is holy when it is separated. And this is why we typically think of the word of holy and sanctified as the same way. Because when you take something apart for a special purpose, you've cut it out, you've sanctified it. So to be cut out, to be separated from for special reasons is to become holy, is to be sanctified. And typically, not all the time, but typically, the way the scriptures talk about holiness and sanctification is primarily by referring to righteous life. The way that we, who were once part of the world, are separated from the world, we are cut off from the world, and we become used for a special purpose, is by becoming holy. The world lives in sin, but we live in righteousness. And we are seeing here that the work that is done in Christians is the work of Christ by His Spirit, making us holy. We have been cleansed. Our sins have been forgiven. He has washed us through the word of his gospel. The gospel is water that comes over us and cleanses us. And then he changes us. He presents us to himself on the great wedding feast of the Lamb as a beautiful bride dressed in all white. Christ is making us more beautiful, which is a metaphor for making us holy. He wants on judgment day his bride to be the glorious one in the room. Jesus wants his bride on judgment day to be the beautiful one in the room. So that's the work he is doing. He is actually making us holy. The church is one. The church is holy. But that leads us to 
the real controversial one, which is that the church is Catholic. We believe in one church. We believe in a holy church. We believe in a Catholic church. Now, the reason this throws so many people off is because when you hear the word Catholic, you tend to associate that word with a very specific institution, the Roman Catholic Church. So you probably have friends who identify themselves as Catholics or Catholic Christians. And the way a Catholic defines themselves is those who are united to the Bishop of Rome, whose nickname is the Pope, which is just the Latin word for father, right? So the way we typically think of a Catholic is somebody who is under the authority and in communion with the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And it's a very tragic thing that that word has come to be associated with that particular institution. Because the word is an ancient word, and it's a very general word, and it never used to have that kind of specific detail. The, that's why typically what you'll find in literature is a difference between capital C Catholic and a lowercase c Catholic. I mean, unless it's at the beginning of a sentence. But Jen, if it's not at the beginning of a sentence, if you see a Catholic with a capital C, that's referring to the institution of Rome, the Roman church, the papal church. If you see Catholic with a small c, like our creed uses, we're talking about something altogether different. For the word Catholic, its technical definition, its original meaning, it just means universal. It actually comes from a similar word for where we get the word cosmic from. Cosmic, universal. When we confess a Catholic church, we are confessing a universal church. So no, nobody in our church, are we claiming, has any fellowship with the Bishop of Rome. As the famous Anglican expression is, the Bishop of Rome hath no jurisdiction here. Okay, we do not believe we are under the Bishop of Rome. We do not believe we are in communion with the Bishop of Rome. But we still believe that we are members of the Catholic Church. Small c. We all belong to the universal church. Our contention is that the church Catholic is the body of Christ. It is those who are in union not with the Pope, but with those who are in union with Jesus Christ. We belong to the universal or Catholic church. But that sort of raises the question, we need the details now. If, if Catholic doesn't mean Pope, well then what does it mean? What does it mean for the church to be universal? And I'm going to give you three Ps that I think will help us see just how universal, just how cosmic, just how Catholic the church is. These three Ps some of them are kind of the same thing, just stated a different way, but it still helps nonetheless. The first P word is that the church is Catholic as it pertains to period. The church is Catholic in reference to period, meaning it spans across the ages. The church Catholic is not limited to one period of time or to one age. So our brothers and sisters who love Jesus today are in the Catholic church. Our brothers and sisters who loved Jesus 2,000 years ago were in the Catholic Church. And we would argue that even our forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who loved the promise of the coming Jesus, were united to him by faith and therefore belonged to the church. The church existed in the days of the patriarchs. It existed in the days of Jesus. It exists today. The church is Catholic and universal in terms to time, in terms to period. It stretches across the ages. And so perhaps this is a good time to remind us of Christ's great promise of a perpetual church. That's not one of our three P words, that's just a coincidence. But the church, because it exists in every period, that inevitably means it's going to always exist. Because time includes the future. 
So the church must exist in the future, which is exactly what Jesus promises. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The, the word hell there in the Greek is Hades, and the, the understanding of Hades to the disciples would have just been the place of the dead. So what Jesus is saying is my church will never die. There will always be a Christian church. It will always exist in the future. It cannot be overcome. It cannot be conquered. The gospel cannot be snuffed out. The church of Christ, the body of Christ, has always existed and it will always exist. I mean, and think about it. If the church is, in fact, now the body of Christ, then that necessarily means it's going to exist as long as Christ's body exists. And his body exists forever. So the Christian church exists forever. It is a perpetual church that spans across the periods. It's been in every age and it will be in every age. It's Catholic in reference to its period, but it's also Catholic in reference to its place. As it pertains to place, the church is universal or Catholic. So what we mean by that is there's no one country, there's no one city, there's no one building that can be called exclusively the Christian church. The church of Christ includes everyone from around the world who are united to him. And believe it or not, it doesn't even just include people in the world. It is so Catholic, it is so universal, it goes beyond the world, and it even includes the saints who still live today, who are more alive than you and I are, in heaven. We have communion, not just with one another in this room, not just with our brothers and sisters around the world. We have a sincere and real communion, even with our brothers and sisters in heaven. The church is Catholic in terms of its place. There's no one place where you call, that's the Catholic church. It's everywhere. It's in every nation, and it's even in heaven. Our beloved Laura Fritz, when she died, she ceased being a member of Redeemer Christian Fellowship. Laura is no longer a member of this communion. But she's still a member of the church Catholic. She, if you could even call her more of a member than you and I are. She still belongs to Christ. She still belongs to Christ's church. She is still a Catholic Christian. She doesn't belong to Redeemer, but she belongs to the church. She is in heaven united to her husband, Jesus Christ. The church, is not, the church is not limited to its place. It is Catholic. It is universal. But it's also not limited to its persons. Again, all of these things work together. So this makes sense. If the church is universal in place, it's universal in time, then it must necessarily be universal in persons. Meaning, the church is not limited to any specific people group. There's no such thing as the Jewish church versus the Gentile church. There's no such thing as the black church versus the white church. The church is one and it is Catholic, which means it includes men and women and children from every people group. The church is Catholic as two persons. This is, by the way, the very revelation of the beautiful, diverse Catholic church that the Apostle John had in the book of Revelation. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There's the Catholic Church. That's the Church Catholic. Men, women, and children from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language united together worshiping Jesus. So what does it mean when we confess a Catholic church? We're saying it is universal, which means it is Catholic in respect to period, place, and persons. 
But this begs the question, where on earth am I getting this from Ephesians 5? Look at verses 25 through 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. According to these verses, what constitutes the church? Who is the church that Jesus loves? And the text tells us two things. He died for her and he is sanctifying her. So this means that you are a member of the church, the Catholic church, if Christ died for you and if you have his Holy Spirit. Those are the qualifications for membership in the Catholic church. It has nothing to do with the bishop in Rome. It has nothing to do with the papacy. If Christ shed his blood for you and his spirit lives in you, you have been enrolled into membership in the, in the church. Not the Roman Catholic church, but in the Catholic church. Because Jesus has one church, and we identify that one church by those whom he died for and whom he is sanctifying. And let me ask you this. Is he only sanctifying the Bishop of Rome? Did he only die for the Pope? Did he die for South Americans? Are there South Americans with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? They're part of the Catholic Church. Did he die for Laura Fritz? Was Laura Fritz sanctified by the blood of Christ? Then she's part of the Catholic Church. You see, that's where we get our definition. The Catholic Church is not limited to an institution. It's not limited to a building. It's anyone that Christ has died for and that is filled with the Spirit. They belong to the Roman Catholic, or forgive me, to the Catholic Church. And that's what makes it in this text. Because Jesus has died for men and women from every period, in every place, from every nation. And that's why we can find the Catholic Church in Ephesians chapter 5. We are talking about any person who is united to Christ by faith. If you believe in Jesus, you are a member of the church Catholic. Regardless of what specific external institution you might belong to, you are part of the church Catholic because you belong to the body of Christ. And that's how we know it is a universal church because Christ has died for people all over the world in every place and time. So the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, and finally we get to our final mark of the church. The church is apostolic. Now by admission, this is the one mark where there's a chance that in our church we might be parting in our understanding from some of the Nicene fathers who wrote the creed. Although that's very heavily debated. We, it's difficult. So many people were at the, the, the council that we don't have any of their writings from. So sometimes it's hard to know if there was a unanimous agreement on every definition of every word. But nonetheless, some of our concerns about how some of the men in the church would have defined this is because we know throughout church history that a very erroneous definition of the word apostolic crept in pretty close to the time of Nicaea. So it's kind of hard to know what if it was already in the in the council or not. And that erroneous definition that came very popular and is still very popular today is that an apostolic church is any church that has apostolic succession. So there are many people in the world today who define an apostolic church based on whether you have apostolic succession. Now, what is that? Apostolic succession is essentially the belief that every leader in the church had to have been ordained, which is symbolized in the laying on of hands. So someone lays hands on you and ordains you, commissions you to ministry. And whoever ordained that leader, whether it be a bishop or a priest or the pope, whoever ordained that leader had to have himself had an ordination that can be traced all the way back to one of the apostles. 
So the idea being the apostles laid hands on men and commissioned them to be pastors. And then those men laid hands on men, commissioning them. And then they laid hands on men. And then there's supposed to be this unbroken chain to your leaders today. So a church is apostolic if the leader in that church has an ordination chain that goes back to an apostle. And so according to this definition, Redeemer Christian Fellowship is not apostolic because I can't do that for you. I can't trace my ordination back to the apostles. So according to these people, you don't actually go to church because all of these marks are connected. You can't separate them. So if you don't go to an apostolic church, you don't go to the one holy Catholic church, which means you don't go to church at all, which means you don't have sacraments, which means you're in big trouble. So you see how this important that gets for people. Now, I don't have time to elaborate further on apostolic succession and give all the arguments and counter-arguments. But I thought that I would just at least briefly, before I define apostolic, just tell you why we really think that that's a poor way to understand the, the, the adjective of an apostolic church. Um, the first reason that I want to give you is that because this inevitably led many of the fathers and many people today to see the church primarily as a hierarchy as an external institution rather than as a people. But we just got done learning under our definition of Catholic that the church is not an external institution. It can't be limited to a physical place or a physical building. It has to be conceived of as a group of people. As a matter of fact, that's what the word church literally means. So the Greek word that we translate into the English word church is ekklesia. And it comes from, an ecclesia itself sort of comes from a Hebrew word which means the called out ones. But the way ecclesia is used primarily in first century Greco-Roman culture is to describe, describe any group of people. In other words, in your New Testament, you will find the word ecclesia attached to things that are not religious at all. For example, an angry mob tried to arrest Paul, couldn't find him, so this angry mob dragged Jason out of his house and the Bible calls that a church, an ecclesia. An angry ecclesia drug, dragged Jason out of his home for persecution. So according to the technical definition, any group of people is an ecclesia. It's a church. You go to a restaurant, there's a church. You go to a game, there's a church. Anytime people are together, that's technically an ecclesia. And so context determines whether it's a church or not. Is this a religious context or a secular context? But the point of all this to say, though, is when we think of the word church, the thing that should pop into our heads is not a building, not a pastor, not a hierarchy, not a leadership, but a group of people. A church is a people group. It's not an authority structure. As a matter of fact, this is just interesting history. I don't have time for this, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. This is what I'm talking about. It's hard to remove things. There were English Bibles, there were, there were translations, during the medieval ages it was basically illegal to translate the Bible out, out of Latin. And many of the early, the pre-reformers, that was the main thing that they were being persecuted for by Rome, was unauthorized English translations of the Bible. They would translate, translate the Bible into English. And the pre-reformers, men like William Tyndale and others, you would read through their English Bibles and guess what word you would never find once in your entire Bible? Church. You would never find the word church in your Bible. Because their fear was that we've taken this word church and we've redefined it and it's not even accurately reflecting the word that's underneath it. So they would take a more literal reading and they would translate ecclesia into something like congregation or assembly. 
So you would read through your Bible and you would see that Jesus has one congregation. You'd read through your Bible and see that Jesus has one assembly. You'd see the apostles addressing the assemblies in Rome, the the congregations in Thessalonica. You wouldn't find the word church. And they did that intentionally because they believed we've corrupted this word. Ecclesia means people. It means a group of people. It's not a hierarchy. As a matter of fact, the, the, the translators of the King James Bible wanted to do that. But King James himself wouldn't let them. So King James was in a tough political position as he kind of led the Anglican church away from Rome. He didn't want war. He didn't want more fighting. So he wanted to make some concessions in the translation to the Roman Catholics while at the same time leading the English church out. So there was a bunch of rules they had to follow to make sure people didn't get too upset. And one of those rules was you are not to follow Tyndale and all of those other guys and leave the word church out. You must use the word church. But there were many translators of the English, of the King James Bible who wanted to do away with the word altogether. Now, I don't have a problem with the word. I'm not trying to promote that. I love the word. I'm glad it's in the Bible. But all I'm trying to promote is when we think of church, we should not think of a hierarchy. We should not think of an institution. We should think of a people group. But the problem with apostolic succession, if the church is ultimately defined by who laid hands, does he have proper authority, that naturally leads to thinking when you think of the church, you immediately just think of an authority structure. You think of a pastor or a chain of commission. But that's not what the word means. That is simply not what the word means. We are to primarily see the church as a people group. And this is why, by the way, sometimes we refer to the church as the invisible church. Because I want to clarify, what we're not saying here is that the church has no hierarchy at all. We're not saying that the church has no institutional manifestation at all. right? So because the universal church is so large and Catholic, it, by, it, it demands what Christ commanded, which are what we call a local manifestation of the church Catholic. So what we call the visible church or the local church is what you're in right now. This is a visible, local manifestation of the larger Catholic church. And obviously the local church has hierarchy, right? There are pastors, there are deacons, there are elders, there are rules, there are membership documents. So I'm not, I'm, we're not trying to be like anti-authority here or anti-hierarchy. Hierarchy exists, structures, institutions, buildings, all of these things exist within the church, but we do not want to make these things definitive of the church Catholic. The church Catholic is not a hierarchy. It's not a membership document. It's not a chain of command. It's God's people. It's the people who are united to Christ by faith. That's the church. But the more important reason why we reject apostolic succession, at least I would argue, is because the whole point of apostolic succession, you would think, is to protect your doctrine. Right? Like, why does it matter that I have the right person who ordained me? The idea is that we're, we're, we're making sure that just not any old vagabond who doesn't know what he's talking about comes in and leads God's people astray. Right? So you would think if there's any benefit to apostolic succession, it's protecting the church. And, and that's certainly how Paul understood the purpose of ordination. Right? Paul told Timothy, after laying hands on him, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The reason we have things like ordination is because we want to make sure that the teachers of the church know what they're talking about. And so you would think that the, the goal of, the, of apostolic succession would be to protect the doctrine of the church. But guess what we know without, with absolute certainty? 
Apostolic succession does not do that. It doesn't do that. Here's why I say that. The Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and all of the other Eastern churches all claim to have apostolic succession. Every single one of them has clergy who can sit down in your office, pull out papers, and trace his ordination back to one of the apostles. Yet all of those churches teach contradictory things. So it doesn't seem like the apostolic succession has done anything. And, and, and not, we don't even have to compare the churches together. We could just take one of them. Take the Roman Catholic Church, for example. And ask yourself, if you know anybody who's like very, very Roman Catholic, are all the men who've been ordained Orthodox? They're all teaching historic Orthodox faith, right? Even their own Pope is being called a heretic by most of them. Do you know how many Roman Catholic bishops there are who promote, who promote the most godless, vile things that our country has conceived of? Those men have apostolic succession. What has it done for them? Nothing. Apostolic succession does not guarantee that your bishop or your pope or your deacon or your pastor will be orthodox. It just simply doesn't. So there's really no point in clinging to it as the definition of the church when it doesn't do anything. And so that's why we say the best way to understand the word apostolic in the creed is the more natural reading. And the more natural reading is simply apostolic does not mean somebody who has a chain of authority that traces back to the apostles. It simply means that we are teaching what the apostles taught. The church is apostolic because it proclaims the apostles gospel, not because it has a hierarchy that goes back to them. We don't want the right hands to be laid on us necessarily. We want their doctrine. We want to teach what the apostles taught. We want their Jesus, their gospel, their religion. So what we're saying is that the true church of Christ holds up what the apostles taught as the chief infallible religious authority for all of Christ's followers. That's what it means to be apostolic. It means you have the apostles deposit in your church. And we would argue this lines up perfectly with what the apostles say about themselves. The apostles saw themselves as the chief authorities for Christianity. Christ is the cornerstone, but they are the foundation, right? Paul says this pretty bluntly in 1 Corinthians, saying, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What does it mean to be outside of the apostolic church? It means you reject the apostles' teaching and authority. If you reject the apostles, you reject the one who sent them. If you reject the apostles, you're not a Christian. You're not part of the church. They're our authorities. Their message is the true message. And so an apostolic church preserves, defends, and teaches their message. But this might beg the question, how do we know their message? They're not here. They're dead. Well, let me ask you this. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? The Apostle Paul. Paul is alive and well in our church today because God has preserved their literature. So in a very real sense, if you want to get practical about it, what does it mean to be an apostolic church? It means to be a biblical church. Because the scriptures are our reliable foundation. The scriptures alone are the only reliable testimony we have to what the apostles actually said and taught. So our job as an apostolic church is to be biblical. It is to hold up the teachings of the Bible. That is why, notice the whole point of this sermon series was not to judge Ephesians in light of the creed. 
It was to judge the creed in light of Ephesians. Why? Because there were no apostles at Nicaea, so they're not infallible. The Bible is above Nicaea because we are not a Nicene church, we're an apostolic one. We want the apostles' message in our church. And so the beauty of being a biblical apostolic church is that this means that no church can add her traditions to our religion. No spiritual can come along and add new revelation to our faith. It is our duty when a Joseph Smith rises up to reject him. We have the apostles' teachings. We don't need you. When a Muhammad rises up, I met Gabriel in a cave. I met the angel Gabriel in a cave, and I've received a whole new religion. Nope, we believe in the apostolic church. We don't need your visions. We don't need your testimonies. We don't need you talking to God. We have the apostles. We have the scriptures. That's what we embrace. We embrace the church that was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus and Christ being the cornerstone. We belong to the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic people of God. 